Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day the Lord has made. We are rejoicing. We are glad in it, despite the news headlines, like, right, despite the fact that there is lots of bad news out there in the world, news that is conflicted, uh, news that is complicated. We are good news people. And so I want us to be not only news obsessed, uh, I actually maybe want us to be good news obsessed. And so I I want you to consider that as we bring the good news of the gospel to bear on every storyline today. Uh, You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm your host, Carmen LeBurge. It is Friday, October the 11th, 2019. And we have have so much to cover uh, in in this opening segment with Matthew Hawkins um, that I'm going to go ahead and bring him on. So, Matt, welcome. Welcome back. Morning. Good morning. I know. Radio time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I knew you were sitting there, and so I thought I uh, I could either do the lead, um, and then we could talk about it, or we could just do it together. Right. So I'm going to lead with the story uh, out of northeastern Syria. I'm reading this from um, World, uh, World Magazine. Mindy Belt's reporting here. Uh, Turkish forces launched a bombing campaign across northeastern Syria on Wednesday, targeting civilian areas, killing uh, Syriac Christians, Christians among the first to die uh, in this Turkish effort. Um, she is reporting here that that the initial bombing in the uh, which you know just came 48 hours after President Donald Trump and Turkish President uh, Recap uh, Erdogan uh, talked on the phone. Um, it, it appears as if the Turks are targeting uh, Christian and Kurdish enclaves along the border in order that they would drive out the current population and create what they then view as a a swath of land upon which they can resettle other Syrians um, who have been displaced by the civil war uh, over the last many years. Um, yeah. Perspective, um, obviously, we're, we're horrified. We're mutually horrified. We recognize it's a complex political situation, um, but just yeah. from a from a Christian worldview perspective, what do you want to bring to this conversation this morning? Gosh, it's such a tragedy, um, and this this region of the, of the world has been under turmoil for many years now. Um, Syria has been involved in its own civil war for, gosh, going on what at least seven to eight years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, the thing that strikes me um, about Syria now, on the one hand, to Americans, it, it I get it. it looks confusing. Like why we were there, um, it's it's complex. It's not a clear uh, nation against, as far as our forces are concerned, nation against nation, um, a kind of declaration of war. We've been there um, since the Iraq War. Um, the Kurds are an extremely historically uh, U.S. friendly uh, region of northern Iraq, um, and uh, American uh, foreign policy has. 
uh, committed and then non-committed and then committed and then flaked again on them multiple times now. And, uh, you know, the one thing that the kind of the policy nuance that strikes me from uh, my time in Washington was that the diplomatic community and the intelligence community uh, for years, they didn't never liked their options about what the U.S. could do around Syria. Um, but the problem was, so they basically did, did nothing. There was very minimal support. They might have given them some uh, you know, communications and, and maybe some arms support. Um, the, but as time went on, particularly once Syria got to five years into their civil war, uh, everybody uh, in D.C., like I'm talking about the credible kind of the diplomatic folks, the intelligence folks, everybody wishes they could go back and choose from the menu of ter- not great options that they had years ago rather than the more limited menu of even more terrible options now. And so it's just a situation that te- kept degrading, 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 and leaving less and less options on the table for international um the international community to engage um, in a state in a place where human rights clearly uh, without our presence um, are being uh, abused wiped away um, innocent women and children um, uh, are going to be subjected to um, uh, being casualties of of this war and uh, yeah christians are, br- are brothers and sisters in christ um, even though we don't express the faith in the same way and have some pretty significant theological differences, this is, you know, this is Christian territory. These are Christians who uh, are an indigenous population uh, to this region. And uh, we got to pray for their safety and we got to pray for um, the better angels in our American foreign policy uh, to, to right the ship here. 65,000 people, uh, according to a human rights uh, watch organization on the ground, 65,000 people fled their homes uh, yesterday. And, and more will do so today as this, uh, as this offensive uh, continues. All right, Matt Hawkins and I will be right back. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we're going to talk about something that happened last night. Uh, it, and um, <clears throat> it's, not, it's not the ra- rally in Minneapolis. So we'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Matthew Hawkins, you can find him uh, at mthawk if you're on Twitter, and you can find him at matthewthawkins.com uh, online. Um, let's talk about what happened last night. Last night, while President Donald Trump was holding a rally in Minneapolis, several uh, leading Democrat contenders to oppose him in the 2020 presidential election participated in what I will describe as a topical town hall on CNN. Yeah. Uh, on how they would use the power of the presidency to advance LGBTQ uh, agenda causes, legal protections, sure. all these kinds of things. Yeah. Um, a, a few things stood out to me. I want to I want to lift up this one um, exchange so between things. so many things. I want to lift up this. I want to start here. CNN moderator Don Lemon asked Beto O'Rourke, former congressman, whether he supported revoking the tax exempt status for religious institutions, including colleges, charities, hospitals, churches, if they don't support gay marriage. Beto O'Rourke responded with a one-word answer, yes. Then he uh, went on. 
There can be no reward, no benefit, no tax break for anyone or any institution, any organization in America that denies the full human rights and full civil rights of every single one of us. And so as president, we're going to make that a priority. We are going to stop those who are infringing upon the human rights of our fellow Americans. Uh, Just so nobody misses it, churches... Religious institutions, colleges, charities, hospitals, any anybody out there who does not buy the current sexual um, orientation, gender identity uh, delusion in some cases uh, is is absolutely in Beto O'Rourke's mind, not not eligible to be treated like everyone else in America. Yeah, I mean, it's it's staggering. The effect would would be staggering uh, on its face, just from just from a quantitative analysis. Uh, think about how many uh, nonprofits, uh, religious nonprofits, particularly Christian, are there are across the across the nation. Think about um, the radio station you're listening to right now. Exactly, exactly, and then in your church and my church and uh, the the you know the affiliation with the Christian uh, university. Um, any pregnancy resource, any faith-based uh, pregnancy resource center, uh, um, a lot of mission houses, a lot of people who are ministering to the homeless, um, the uh, the charitable sector in and of itself uh, is estimated uh, to have an effect of multi-billion-dollar uh, um, ramifications for uh, in in the U.S. Um, not all of that is. Uh, Christian nonprofits who hold to a view of uh, one man, one woman marriage, but a significant part of it would be. Uh, so just on the scope of it, uh, Beto's uh, remarks are, uh, are pretty staggering uh, if, if it were to be carried out. Um, my second reaction is like, look, this is exactly what the Equality Act is. So, you know, kudos to Beto for uh, being truthful in, in what, what the end game is here. Uh, it is to bring everybody in America under... Uh, the sway of um, of the LGBT normalization movement, and uh, that's what what's at the crux here. Uh, what's fascinating to me is how much they're going to clearly doubling down on this, heading into a primary season and heading into a general election next year. Um, if I can pivot from my my ethicist advocacy hat to uh, some some rank punditry, um, uh, you know, this is a race to the left, politically speaking. Um, for this issue to have the town hall in and of itself, uh, number one. But, you know, I, I can't imagine uh, this playing well with even uh, kind of the more centrist folks or, uh, say, the, uh, the Obama voters who turned to Trump voters in 2016. Um, these are pretty much, uh, you know, uh, the wish list as, you know, they were on the stage. Keep in mind, they were on the stage, not only within, with a CNN logo, but with the logo of the human rights campaign which is the uh, primary um, uh, lobby organization for the LGBTQ uh, community. Um, and uh, could you imagine, when has there ever been a topical town hall uh, presidential debate on the subject of abortion? Ever. I don't know, but maybe we should have one. Not even, not even for Republican candidates. Well, I have guess, we, yeah, ever I, I guess no, a none of these... town hall to no. that issue? No, but it's I could imagine stunning. Planned Parenthood co-sponsor. I mean, I could now imagine having seen last night's co-sponsored event by CNN and and in the human rights campaign, um, basically to advocate for one piece of legislation, HR five, 
um, basically to give absolutely you know dedicated airtime to the advancement not only of one piece of legislation but to the advocacy on one issue. I could now absolutely conceive in my mind of a a co co branded co sponsored event between CNN and uh, and Planned Parenthood on you know universal uh, providing abortion on demand at taxpayer expense, you know, as a universal human right around the globe. Like I, I could I could absolutely after watching last night, I could absolutely see that happening. It's it's just remarkable. I mean, set aside disagreement on the particular issue, the right. the optics of this yeah. were just as soon as I saw the first clip and the logo is so prominent. I mean, it was just remarkable. I mean, this is CNN, uh, a national news, international news organization advancing a particular uh, issue in a particular piece of legislation. And this is what I don't think uh, the political left and uh, uh, the media get is like Americans like see that they, okay, they, so, they don't well, like okay, it. So, since since we're talking about CNN and I'm not I'm not we're not just picking on them. Um, yeah, sure. I, not. I was not aware until yesterday that CNN has a uh, CNN Turk. If you type in CNN Turk, it'll actually translate it for you. Um, they it's basically a um, a PR arm for Erdogan and the way they are covering what is happening uh, and with this Turkish incursion into Syria is completely different than what you see and hear. If you uh, watch and listen to uh, CNN in the United States of America, I mean, I, I was staggered by how willing they are to set aside um, the the responsibility of journalism and, yeah. and just be so. Uh, an yeah. arm of the of the state in in that particular place. Okay, I have to. We have to I move think. on. Yeah, I, I know because I probably can't. But I, the, that that I, point right pro- there. Oh, about... oh, oh! Paul says I have to take a break anyway. We have to take, take a break. break. Right. I thought we were to take right. a break. It was the other break. Okay, we're taking a break. We'll be right back. All right, I feel like there are lots of you out there that probably have something to contribute to this conversation. So just remember, you are always welcome to text me during the show at 877-933-2484. Again, that's 877-933-2484. I actually keep one eye on the text line uh, and one eye on my guest. So there you go. So uh, with me in this hour is Matt Hawkins. You can find him online at MatthewTHawkins.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at MTHawk. And Matt, it's not lost on me just to finish up that conversation about last night's um, emphasis on LGBTQ concerns and Democratic candidates for the presidency. It's not lost on me that, that this this town hall, this forum was scheduled in the same week of oral arguments uh, in sexual orientation, gender identity related cases before the Supreme Court. So uh, I just wanted that's to. That's not a mistake. That's not a mistake. Yeah, that's not a mistake. Sorry, not that didn't act- happen. It's- that didn't happen by chance. Right. That's tr- That's strategic. Okay, so there were a couple of life-related headlines um, that popped yesterday that I wanted to discuss with you today. Um, This just continuing tragic revelation in northern Indiana, southern Illinois, um, the the discovery of additional um, babies who were aborted and then their remains were uh, preserved and kept in in conditions in ways that just are – it's just horrific. Talk with us about what's going on here. Yeah, this case is just a horror story to watch. I mean, it's a real life terrible thing. And uh, 
they keep finding in in this Ul- Ulrich Klopfer's uh, this the late abortionist and uh, they keep finding more uh, bodies of aborted fetus of, of aborted babies. Um, and it's in this case they discovered in the trunk in the trunk of a, a Mercedes that was owned by him that was apparently in storage. Um, and uh, they're still they were still counting them at the time of this uh, story, but they were quote less than a hundred. Uh, so it might have this another another uh, uh, many dozens. I don't know. I don't even call it. I right. call it a batch, but it's like a, a, any any word of multiple things sounds de- dehumanizing to me. Um, uh, it's it's just staggering. Um, and then another another uh, factoid that popped is that uh, this abortionist in particular was believed to have performed around thirty thousand abortions during his forty three years in practice. Thirty thousand. That's yeah. that's an American town. I mean. I mean, the we, South we, Bend, we Indiana. Get, it's a little. I mean, it's not even like a city. I mean, it, it is, but I mean, it's not big. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, um, and then, uh, and then, can we? But yeah. while we've before our time runs out, um, the story out of Arizona is really, really staggering to me. Um, yeah. This uh, this government official who works for Maricopa County. He is the elected county assessor. Um, he is an attorney. He has been trafficking. Pregnant women, um, uh, bringing them here to the United States of America, putting them on the welfare rolls here, um, in order that their their care and the and the birth of their children can be paid for by taxpayers, and then he is collecting uh, tens of thousands of dollars from adoptive parents in at least three states. Um, just wow! Take this one on. Yeah. Um... Well, first of all, what's interesting to note is all of this is illegal. So all of it, all of it, all of it, <laughs> all of it is illegal. Um, so this is a situation where, from a policy perspective, a lot of people are going to be like scratching their heads because, right? You want to you see this kind of case uh, of people who've been taken advantage of, uh, both uh, uh, w- women who were. Uh, you know, vulnerable and uh, and not aware of what they're getting themselves into, and uh, Amer- you know American families who desire to adopt children and are trying to do a good thing, and and both both of those uh, people have been taken advantage of um, by uh, this Peterson guy, and not to mention uh, U.S. taxpayers uh, who who uh, he he snookered, uh, played the system basically to get. Uh, get health care uh, costs for people, for mothers who would later uh, be uh, giving their daughter, uh, their children up for adoption uh, in some pretty squarmy circumstances and not fully aware of what was going on. Uh, and so when we see a crisis like this, we're like, okay, well, we need to craft a law to stop this from ever happening again. All of this is already illegal. And so uh, it's going to be interesting to see how... Um, uh, federal officials and uh, maybe Arizona state officials are going to reconcile this to see if there are any particular you know loopholes he was uh, taking advantage of, or if he was just uh, just nobody noticed. Um, and uh, as as people who affirm adoption and uh, and and want to see people adoption adopted and uh, recognize adoption as a rescue. Um, a rescue operation, um, we want to see adoption continue. And on the one hand, 
Uh, there are a lot of hurdles in front of families who want to adopt. Um, and so when you have a situation that appears to be even slightly less complicated and slightly less um, long as far as its time frame, those kinds of things are really appealing. The problem is they've turned out to be often fraudulent. And so uh, there are a number of things we could do. Um, uh, there are a lot of proposals. I'm kind of blanking on some of the specifics at the federal level, but uh, particularly for international adoptions, um, mm-hmm. there are some thing, there are some reforms that could be made to the adoption situation to streamline um, streamline the situation um, in in a you know quality uh, law abiding way. Um, because that's part of the situation here is that adoption is so often so expensive and often so difficult that it creates um, a desire and an opportunity for for people to uh, like Mr. Peterson to take advantage of people in often in their desperation and in their emotions when they're, they're not thinking clearly. So uh, it underscores the need for uh, for us to work with adoption agencies who are uh, established and credible and, uh, and know what they're doing and you know, their research. So, because part of that time, part of that, part of that duration that you're waiting for and part of the expense is assuring that everything is legal. Um, exactly. That, that takes time, that takes expense, unfortunately. Um, so uh, that's, my, that's my quick take on this. Absolutely. All right. If you're looking for um, really good, trustworthy information related to adoption, um, Bethany Christian Services is one that I am familiar with, and you can just find them at bethany.org. Um, Matt, thank you so much. As always, we'll catch up with you again next week. I'm sure we will have another laundry list of things to discuss. Uh, you can find um, Matt at MT Hawk. Yes, sir. What were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say thank you for having me on. Have a great week. Hey, absolutely. And we're praying We're praying for you as you sit for your um, entrance exam to your PhD I, program. I took it Wednesday. <gasps> oh, survived. Oh, well, I'm amen. Gonna, I'm going to go stare at a wall today and my, okay, my brain just awesome. turned to mush. So. That's awesome. Thanks, man. We'll Thanks. be right back. Okay, so last week the ERLC held a national conference in which the largest Protestant denomination in the country wrestled with the issue of sexual abuse in the church. We have talked about the reality of the horrific reality and trauma of sexual abuse in the church. The event was called Caring Well. Um, we talked about uh, we talked about it here. Next up, I'm sharing one of the conversations I had at the conference with a survivor. Her name is Jennifer Greenberg, um, and that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Okay, so um, as we have these conversations, like the one we're going to have next about the very real trauma that people experience in life. Um, Sometimes we wonder, how, I'm, how am I supposed to walk with somebody who's walking in grief? And grief is a really broad category of, uh, of human experience. It's not just the loss, uh, let's say, of, of a spouse or a child or a parent or a friend. We're not just talking about the grief caused by death. We're talking about the grief that's caused by the loss of significant relationships, the loss of purity, the loss of, of trust. There are all kinds of grief in this life. Uh, We are offering a free online course. Faith Radio and the University of Northwestern St. Paul are offering a free online course, Navigating Grief with Humor. It's taught by Professor Melissa Mork. Uh, You can can find out all about it and register online. It's free. MyFaithRadio.com. Do you have clutter in your life? 
I have way more than I'd like to admit. Hi, I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. Piles of paper on my desk, laundry all over the bedroom floor, and toys, well, they're just about everywhere. There's nothing like stepping on a Lego in the middle of the night to illuminate the need to get rid of clutter. I found it's nearly impossible to get rid of clutter, though, without first taking the time to review what I have. So here's an idea. You could do the same thing with the financial clutter in your life. Look at your bank account. Are there automatic payments for stuff you really don't need? Are you buying that coffee just because it's part of your routine? Or do you have bills that you're paying late because you misplaced the invoice? Bringing order to chaos is a good thing. And when you declutter your finances, it's more likely you'll be a better steward of all God has given you. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And He's given us new life. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I am joined now by Jennifer Greenberg. She is the author of Not Forsaken. You heard her book interview here with Peter Kapsner when I was out of town, but I have the opportunity to sit down and actually talk with her face-to-face here in Dallas at the ERLC National Conference uh, called Caring Well, which we've been following. So Jennifer, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. You guys can uh, follow her on Twitter. She's Jen with two N's, M. Greenberg, Jen M. Greenberg, um, and Jennifer Greenberg dot dot net. Dot yes. Net. All right. Is her website. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's talk about the ministry aspect of what you're doing because Absolutely. not forsaken is, is a, is a great book, but mm-hmm. really what's, what you have in mind there is the ministry mm-hmm. of the way the word is actually a balm in the lives of people who are moving through what I would call a redemptive process following mm-hmm. uh, sexual abuse. Absolutely. Yeah, so Not Forsaken maps out um, key milestones in my own recovery process. I also interviewed over 100 survivors um, and spoke with them about their challenges that they face. So I could kind of hone in and focus on um, challenges that are common to most survivors, if not all survivors. Um, issues like depression, suicidal thoughts, anger at God, understanding what does it mean if I've got an abusive father? What does it mean when God calls himself a father? How do I understand fatherhood in a biblical sense? How do I understand love in a biblical sense? Because, you know, so often, especially when we're children, um, how we define words, how we perceive the world is shaped by our parents, by our teachers, by our pastor. And if those people are abusive, then the very definition of words like love or forgive can be completely misguided and warped in a terrible way. Um, So it's not just the abuse of a child, it's the abuse of God's word. And it's it's an abuse of, of the name of Christ. Let's walk people through one of those. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about redeeming father. Yes. How, where does that even start? Yeah. Um, well, the first thing I had to do was admit that I was very angry at God. Um, you know, I had prayed for many, many years, over two decades, that my dad would get better, that he would change, that he would love me. 
but rather like Pharaoh, his heart hardened. Um, and so, you know, I, I had to deal with the, the concept that we have a sovereign God. We have a God who's in control. He can have mercy. He can save. But for whatever reason, my dad didn't change and he wasn't saved. Um, so, you know, I wrestled a lot with that. Um, and, but, but going back to scripture and really digging through scripture and one story that I found really helpful was actually the story of Jacob. When he is on his way to meet Esau, he meets a stranger in the desert and he wrestles with this stranger. And as they're fighting and tussling in the dirt, he realizes that this stranger is God. And I think so often in our lives, we feel like we're wrestling with God and we feel like God is a stranger, but we have to realize that, that God gets down in the dirt of our lives, right? He gets down into the trauma and, and the bruises and the brokenness and we can cling to him as Jacob did and we can beg him to bless us. And I did. I, I told God at one point, you know what? I don't know how to process my anger, my anger at you, my anger at my dad, my anger at myself, my anger at all the people who could have protected me, but for whatever reason, didn't. I can't sort this out. This is a mess. But you are sovereign and you are all powerful. And you can sort this out, and I need you to take my anger away from me. And it was a process still, but once I admitted to God that he was the one who needed to heal me, that he was the one that needed to carry my anger, that was a huge turning point in my life. You know, I told Jesus, look, you, t you carried my sins to the cross. If you can do that, you can take care of this, mm. you know? So not too big for him. Right. Exactly. It's not, not too, too big for him. And once I stopped trying to tackle it myself, once I stopped trying to control what I was feeling, control the trauma, once I gave that control to God, things got so much better so quickly. Mm. I'm talking with Jennifer Greenberg. She's the author of Not Forsaken. You can find her at jennifergreenberg.net. Um, well, let's talk about the redemption of, uh, of the word love mm -hmm. and let's talk about the redemption of love enacted. Your husband mm -hmm. is here. Yes. Um, and, and so, uh, this is my guess, something that over time you had to work through. Absolutely. Right? What is love and what does that look like yeah. uh, in, in terms of being redeemed? So let's take a quick break mm -hmm. and then we come back. Let's unpack that again. Uh, my conversation with Jennifer Greenberg. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Jennifer Greenberg, author of Not Forsaken. Um, Jen, let's talk about love. Let's talk mm -hmm. about the redemption of the word. And then let's talk about the redemption of uh, love enacted in marriage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think it was when I was about 11 years old that I finally came to the term to terms with the fact that my dad didn't love me, at least not in a normal way. And, um, you know, and that was very painful for me. Um, I, I loved him desperately. And so, you know, unfortunately I, 
you know, I tried to, I tried to talk to some people, but they didn't understand what I was going through. Um, and I think I didn't have the vocabulary at the time to even explain what I was going through, you know? So I might've told people, say, for example, that my dad just, you know, he's, he gets angry, but to them that didn't mean abuse, you know, but because I think because I didn't use that keyword abuse or domestic violence, something was lost in translation. And so, um, you know, it, it's funny because what really happened, what really forced me to realize that what I'd experienced was abuse was the love of my husband, because suddenly I was living with a godly man. Hmm. Um, I was living with a man who was patient, who was interested in my feelings, who wanted me to succeed, who wanted me to have a career. He wanted to participate in my hobbies. You know, even if, even if something wasn't of interest to him, he took time to, to invest himself in it just because he loved me. And that was a new experience for me. And so because I started acclimating to being truly loved, I started to realize um, how dysfunctional my childhood had been by contrast. You know, it's like walking out of a dark room. You know, your eyes are acclimated to the dark, but then you, you walk out into this brilliant light and your eyes start adjusting to that light and you look behind you back into that darkness and you realize just how dark it was. And that's a lot like how it was. And so, you know, whenever I sat down to write my book, I knew that I needed to redefine not just for my readers, but also for myself, what is love? And so, you know, I, of course I turned to, um, I turned to the Bible, um, to first Corinthians 13, you know, love is patient, love is kind, you know, it doesn't gloat, it doesn't envy. Um, and so I, 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 I didn't just settle for that list though. I kind of dug through the Bible to figure out, okay, well, what do, what do each of these words mean? What do these concepts mean? Not to me, not to my dad, not even to the church. What do they mean to God? And so by analyzing all of those things, I was able to come to a new understanding of what love means. And you know, what's really interesting, at least to me, it was, um, my abuser, he represented the antonyms of all those mm. words. Mm. You know, abusers are impatient, mm. unkind, unmerciful, ungentle. You know, they're violent. They're, they're cruel. They're apathetic. Self-serving. Yes, so. selfish, um, dishonest. And so I started realizing that while my husband... And the good pastors I've had have modeled Christ in my life. And they've, they've drawn me, they've pushed me sometimes <laughs> toward Christ. My abuser, even though he, he could quote scripture and, you know, read big, big, thick theology books that are still over my head. Um, he pulled me away from Christ and he, he made me feel inferior and not just undeserving of God's forgiveness, not just undeserving of grace, but incapable of ever reaching it, mm. you know, just, and so his, the, the words he would say sounded biblical, but the way he defined those words and the actions that he used to back up 
didn't match the gospel at all. And so once I realized that, I realized that the gospel was kind of my roadmap of recovery. Hmm. You know, because God has been contending against abuse since the beginning. You know, you had Satan well, and the manipulating manip- the manipulation of his word and yes, the mis- misrepresentation of, of Christ, what God has God, said and what he yes. has in mind. I mean, all of those things mm-hmm. are wound up in this. Absolutely. I want to ask you, um, you, you guys have three little girls. Yes. Does it, does, is there at some level, does it like terrify you to be raising girls today? You know, actually it's been incredibly freeing. Good. I know that sounds ironic, but it, it's been so hard for me to to understand how my parents mm. could could not love me enough or not it's hard to explain but when i became a parent i was finally able to look at my kids with a parent's eyes and realize to an even greater degree how wrong my own childhood had been you know i can't imagine you know doing or saying some of the things that my dad did or said to me. And if anyone did or said any of those things to one of my children, I know absolutely that I would get help for them, Mm -hmm. that I would support them. And there's really actually something empowering about that because if anything ever happens to one of my children, I'm going to be there Mm -hmm. and I'm going to get what they're going through and I'm not going to let them be abused and they're going to be believed. So I feel that God in his, in his wisdom has equipped me to be a better and stronger mother than I ever knew could exist because he's worked in my heart. I wish um, this was television instead of radio <laughs> so that people could see the radiance of um, of your face and your smile. Um, and that you are the two of you and your family and you personally, you're just a picture of redemption and, and, and it's palpable. Like the, um, the spirit within me is agreeing with the spirit in you. There is, um, <laughs> thank you. And so I want to thank you for being, uh, such a radiant living testimony of the power of God to redeem, not just to redeem an individual, which has clearly happened, Mm -hmm. but to redeem love and to redeem marriage and to redeem family and raising kids. And Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's so redemptive. So thank you. That's all God, (laughs) right? But it's so beyond me. (laughs) And it's so great. It's, it's all God. And it's so great. It is. Jennifer Greenberg, thank you so much for joining us again today on Mornings with Carmen. Uh, You guys can find Jennifer online at jennifergreenberg.net. The book is Not Forsaken. You can go grab the conversation that she had with Peter Kapsner. I'll post that on the website as well. You can follow her on Twitter at Jen, two N's, M Greenberg. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carmen. We'll be right back. So uh, sometimes we enter into conversations uh, that we we don't necessarily know immediately how to respond because the person with whom we are talking about something clearly has given it a lot of thought from their particular perspective, and we feel intimidated. I don't know if you've ever felt intimidated in, in a conversation with somebody else who is defending something that you know is patently not true. You know, as you are listening to them, Uh, that what they are saying is not 
right. It's not accurate. Um, it is not aligned with reality. It is not true of the God who is. It does not align with what God has revealed about his character or his uh, or his design or his will uh, or his redemptive purpose in the scriptures. And and so you find yourself standing there and you you know, you know that you know that what is being said is not right. But you're also wondering, how do I say, how do I speak that truth right now? How do I speak the truth that I know to be true into a conversation where a person is so aggressively um, advocating for something that is clearly false? Well, I think it starts with a posture of, uh, of non-defensiveness. God does not need us to defend him. And although we are responsible to continue to put the truth out there, we do so like the one who sows the seed. We are not actually uh, responsible for what happens in the heart or mind or life of that other individual. Um, We are responsible to plant the seed. We are responsible to till the soil of conversation. We are responsible to plant the seed. We are responsible to do so uh, not only in terms of content that honors the mind of Christ on the matters of the day, but in ways that honor Christ in our day. So you can't be presenting the gospel in non-gospel ways. And when I talk about gospel, I'm not just talking about, you know, the, the, the road to salvation. I am talking about God's redemptive purpose in all of human history. All right. That's all the time we've got in this hour. We will be right back with another hour of Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.